Welcome to the ArcDocs podcast. This podcast features discussions from leading industry professionals regarding building information modeling and digital construction. If you enjoy this podcast, or if you would like us to feature a specific topic, please let us know in the comments section of our social media platforms. You can also check out our website at www.arcdocs.com for more information. Welcome back to the ArcDocs podcast. This is episode five. Today we're joined with Maliki Matthews, we're joined with Pat Slattery, and we're also joined with Jerry O'Carroll. Hi Maliki, how are you? Uh, great. Uh, and thanks very much, lads, for the invitation to come out and have the chat. Yeah, you're more than welcome, Maliki. It's delighted to have you here. Good to have you here. Yeah. Let's have some interesting discussions around BIM and education. Yeah, yeah, it's it tends to enter the conversation around me, all right, you know. So, uh, no, I'd be delighted to. Uh, I suppose just to kick off, um, I suppose just to introduce yourself, you know, what your background is, and uh, how you've come to where to be where you are in terms of BIM, in the BIM space. Um, I've had a, a pretty, I suppose, eclectic uh, 36 year career now at this point in design and construction. And uh, the foundation of that would have been uh, the technician diploma in architecture, which I did in uh, from Bolton Street. Qualified in 1982. And in uh, 1982, God, there was a serious uh, recession on then as well, you know. And um, I think 29 of us qualified. Within four weeks, 25 of them uh, had left the country. So that's how, that's how bad things were then. Um, I stuck around and uh, did uh, spent a couple of years picking up a little bit of work here a little bit of work there a couple of weeks here a couple of months there all of that um, but uh, I suppose rather than go into, into detail of, of, of all the various different jobs that I have done over the years we'd be here all afternoon just talking about that my career I suppose has been in three kind of uh, sections so I've had three career changes uh, you could put it that way um, uh, in that time and uh, the first one was, uh, I suppose, when I stumbled and fell into construction, more or less taking up an opportunity that was there uh, because uh, the architectural world was, was more or less dead at that time. And uh, I went uh, working for a main contractor and spent 10 years, roughly 10 or 11 years at that, between working in the UK and here on heavy civil engineering jobs, kind of uh, bridge construction, road, motorway construction, infrastructure projects, things like that. Well, that was brilliant. It was really interesting. You know, building is building, and uh, whether it's below the ground or above the ground, uh, you learn an awful lot about uh, people and materials and techniques and management and, uh, and money and the importance of good communication in terms of um, the design and the contractor. So uh, that was really interesting to see things from the contractor's point of view. Um, around mid-1990s, 1970s, 96, 97, I finished in contracting and decided to get back into architecture as things had picked up a bit. Uh, I had done a couple of CAD courses uh, with <clears throat> one of the contractors I was with, and I took to took like a duck to water to that, really enjoyed that. I think it was that actually that encouraged me to get back into the architecture, uh, into the architecture field. So um, I worked in the design offices uh, for about another 10, 11 years or so, um, ending up as the chief technician in the architect department in Vingal County Council. And while I was there, um, I went to a presentation. Uh, Brita Corrigan at the time gave a presentation, one of the very first presentations on Revit. And uh, as soon as I saw that, I saw here we are in for another paradigm change without a doubt. So I started to follow that up. 
Uh, Cormac Allen, who was the head of the architectural technology department in, uh, in DIT, uh, spotted the fact that I had this um, expertise in the whole area of digital uh, technologies and things like that. So I did one year's part-time teaching in, on the architectural technology course and through a set of circumstances, the position opened up and I applied for it and I got the job. And so uh, the third uh, career change happened in 2007 and I went in full-time teaching in the architectural technology program uh, in, in DIT, where I am today and where I hope to finish. <laughs> well, I hope you'll be there for a few years longer, huh? <laughs> I think working in construction is quite interesting. I think that's something that uh, every technologist should look to do at some point during their career, is to get out onto sites and, and work for a contractor um, and see how things really happen. Yeah, I, it, there's no doubt about it. Um, it. It brings huge benefits, you know. Um, if you think about it this way, when we're designing buildings and detailing buildings, uh, it's somewhat abstract uh, because it's, it's on, it was pen on paper, it was mouse and, and uh, monitor uh, uh, to begin with. Um, but when you get out and feel concrete, I mean, you're working with steel fixing gangs and, uh, and concrete gangs and things like that, it becomes very real to you very, very quickly. So that was, that was, that was a brilliant experience to take into it. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I heard Will talk uh, on your last podcast and, and his background, and he was lucky in the sense that he got that opportunity to be able to do that. Um, I don't think it's necessary for every AT to go out onto site, but I certainly think anyone who does uh, will derive enormous benefit from that. And in terms of uh, bringing BIM into DIT or TU Dublin, as it's now called, um, what's your experience been in terms of its acceptance and the... Well, that's, that's, that's a good story. That's, so I'm quite happy to tell that story. Um, so uh, I arrived in 2007, and uh, knowing that Revit was on the horizon, and uh, I was in there to teach CAD, but I started to drop in Revit lessons as well, you know, keeping one chapter ahead of the students. That was as far as we were getting those days. Uh, but it was coming pretty obvious to me, and very obvious to me, that this was our future. And um, Revit and BIM is a really hand-in-glove fit with the architectural technologist, um, more than any other profession uh, uh, out there. So um, I started to um, make my uh, views known uh, amongst uh, my own colleagues. And it was me. I, I called the very first call to arms, if you like, in, in Bolton Street. Um, I sent out an email and asked any to... As people, anybody was interested in, in BIM to come to a meeting uh, to see what we could maybe do <coughs> in order to progress that, and about 13 people turned up. Um, so that was encouraging for starters, and they were from various different um, departments and schools. From there, um, I uh, did the very first BIM presentation in, in Bolton Street. Uh, it was the Hewlett Packard Lecture Series, and um, it was the first time an awful lot of people ever heard uh, Revit or BIM. So, that, so again, that was that was very informative, and then I organised a symposium in which I persuaded uh, heads and assistant heads of schools of electrical, mechanical, architecture, engineering to come along and uh, to talk about how they were going to implement uh, BIM within their programmes, and that was a seminal moment I think within uh, the whole development of uh, of BIM within DIT. Um, I wouldn't say I was the very first; I was certainly the first person to push it. Uh, Dr. Morris Murphy, who's since retired, um, did a PhD thesis using Archicad to uh, produce, I suppose, historical uh, artefacts, you could say, 
uh, which would have been columns and uh, column heads and that type of thing from old pattern books that that he found. And uh, so that was interesting. That was a very localized study. It wasn't uh, brought out. So uh, I can honestly say that it, it, you know I'm 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 one of the main reasons why. BIM happened within DIT. It was always going to happen, but it happened uh, in the way that it did because of the work that I did uh, within there. So uh, I designed the first six BIM modules, which were embedded into the Architectural Technology Program, and uh, they became a mainstay of that program. That was the first time to do that, and I delivered those. Out of that, uh, we got some springboard money at the time. If you remember, it was out, and I designed and developed... Uh, CPT programs in collaborative BIM and uh, that ran for a couple of years and then out of that uh, the college developed a BIM policy and the School of Multidisciplinary Technologies got formed uh, and then the BIM moved over there and the masters uh, that uh, a lot of people now are on are, are going through you know this well Jerry <laughs> and, and Ryan and um, so, but that came out of the two 30 uh, credit modules that I produced in terms of collaborative BIM. Um, and I produced the three modules uh, uh, in the certificates then. And I also designed the master's module as well. Uh, I would say the thing that makes me really kind of most proud uh, is the fact that this year now we'll have six um, research papers delivered at the CETA BIM conference in September, all arising from that master's. And... Uh, and the way I designed it was to have, rather than a 20,000 word thesis, which goes into a library shelf somewhere, was to produce a journal paper so that we could get the information out. Um, yeah, so we, we, we'll have six papers delivered from that course, six research papers delivered. And uh, so it was a great way to get really good research out, disseminated out into the industry really quick. And, uh, and that is paying its dues now. So absolutely delighted with that. Was it a difficult journey? Oh yeah, it was a really difficult journey. It still is. Still resist pockets of resistance out there. And um, uh, and then, <clears throat> you know, one of the things we're trying to do at undergraduate level is to bring in a multidisciplinary collaborative module. And uh, that's proving to be very difficult because it just takes a lot of people to agree to come together to design the module, to give up time and, and everything else like that. So that's still one of the ambitions that needs to be done. Okay. And BIM is now fundamentally part of what the architectural technologists study. Absolutely. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's a core. We have four core modules and BIM is, is one of those core modules. Uh, you know, uh, at, again, at the time there was, there was a resistance from, from lots of different people and uh, we made this big bang uh, um, decision to shift CAD out and bring Revit in and uh, that was very difficult at the time and uh, I got a lot of flack from industry, a lot of flack from colleagues and uh, whatever, all saying that CAD was, was still required and yes, it's still required but it's not the future and um, so uh, over the years as more and more the graduates start to get employed in Revit or BIM based offices um, it, uh, I, I used to flag up those figures and say we're getting there so about two years ago we think we knew, got nearly full employment uh, of, of our graduates in, uh, in various different offices and again moving uh, the architectural technologist uh, you know, provides you with a fantastic skill set so that um, the architecture label is both the thing that brings students in but it's the straitjacket when they go out 
in the sense that the skill set is equally as valuable in the architectural domain as it is in the engineering domain and particularly now the construction domain. And some of the more switched on contractors and engineers are now coming to us looking for our students because of their digital background with their core skills of, of building technologies. Um, so we're under more and more pressure um, in terms of, uh, uh, of supplying students and the students, unlike me in 1982, are sitting back with three or four job offers wondering where, where will they go, you know. So that's a fantastic situation. But it was the right decision and was taken at the right time. And we've built up a real bank of um, of skilled uh, um, resources there in order to, 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 to bring these guys up to industry and beyond industry uh, level. And there's a lot of different technologies involved in building a lot of different software applications and software packages. How do you manage to make sure that the students get to know the right ones and they're not going off on tangents and software which is not directly related to their core yeah that's that's a really good question and it's one that um again i have come under serious pressure for over the years and the way i look at it is that um you need to become uh really really skilled in one particular bim software in our case it's revit and i'm asked why why revit because it's the market leader full stop uh simple as that once you learn uh, how to operate in a, in a three-dimensional world and once you learn the, uh, the various different tool sets and things like that and the processes and methodologies behind that, you'll pick up any other 3D software really, really quickly. Um, CAD, uh, we've, just, we've, we've left it behind. We, we do about a week's CAD brief training with them before they go out for their placement in third year. And uh, my, my view on that is that... Um, if the student goes into uh, the office and is asked, uh, can you do CAD? And they say, no, uh, what can you do? Do Revit. Okay, well, come over and work in this Revit job. But the first question is always asked, can you do CAD? Because they're looking for someone to work in the CAD job. Um, but the students pick it up. They pick it up within three weeks, they are motoring along in CAD. And all of them looking at going, what are we doing here with this? But it still is, and it's, reflected, it's a reflection back upon the architectural profession. That we're still using CAD. Yeah, I agree 100% with that. Um, and I think with, you know, with the number of graduates coming out of um, the colleges now, you know, there is a sort of a critical mass happening where there are more people now who can do Revit and less people do, do CAD. And I think there's a real sort of sea change happened in the last probably one, two years. Yeah. You know, see more of that yeah. I think in terms of other softwares, um, you know, we used to cover SketchUp, we used to cover Photoshop, we used to cover InDesign. We discover lots of kind of what I still refer to as legacy softwares. Um, really, they are, and uh, you know, it was my decision to say that these are not critical in terms of these. This is stuff that you can learn very quickly, very easily when you qualify or in the summer or or anywhere else like that. Like the beauty of SketchUp is that it's so intuitive to pick up. When I mention format to people, they look at me. What what's that? You know, I said, well, this is the old desk version of SketchUp, and you know they had one. You know, so. Uh, we we will be doing a little bit of that. I suppose the only other application that we have brought into the course, particularly in fourth year, would be the dynamo aspect of, of, of Revit. And I think that's an essential skill for a technologist to have. But lots of other softwares can, as you say, Pat, divert you away from your main focus. And here's an interesting <clears throat> fact for you in terms of learning. So an architectural technologist from DIT does not go into an office until they have 500 structured hours of Revit learning. Wow. That's a lot. Yeah. That's a lot. 
absolutely fantastic. Because I mean, ultimately, these people are architectural professionals. You know, they're, they're working in an architectural world. The tools they use, you know, are just that. They're just tools. You know, whether it's Revit or whatever they happen to use, they are just tools. Ultimately, they need to understand buildings. They need to understand the technologies that are required um, and, and the, the standards that are required to build a building. Um, Absolutely, the, the, the core <coughs> learning is, is the building technologies, is the construction technologies, is building performance, is building materials. You cannot do a BIM properly unless you understand those. I think a lot of people get fooled into that. I love, there's, I'll give you four definitions of BIM building information modeling, building information management, better information manage, management, and building imagery modeling. <laughs> all of those which uh, quite really realistically apply yeah. they do apply yeah. yeah but don't take a building imagery model as being a building information model the two things are very different yeah, yeah but all of those are really important to understand I mean, there, is, there is understanding the process of BIM so how, how BIM works on a project how people collaborate um, and share information on the project and structure information and then there's the the tools that you use, the Revit or whatever your, your software of choice is for creating the, the information model and managing the data. Mm-hmm. And understanding that the information model is more than just the Revit model. Yeah, there's, there's, but there's, there's, there's the right way to create the model and it's the wrong way to create the model. And I would expect that uh, our graduates going into the field, as soon as they hit the office, are able to spot the wrong way to build a model and be able to put that correct and whoever built it the wrong way to put them correct as well. They will be the building. They're the information creators, and uh, and if somebody uh, builds a model using uh, in-place massing all over the shop to which there's no data attached, you know that's that's where BIM gets a bad reputation because it's not built correctly. So these guys need to uh, be confident enough and strong enough to be able to go into an office and say, "You're not doing that correctly. It needs to be done this way because we need." Uh, you know, geometry, 3D geometry. We need materials on it, but we need data associated with that as well. And if we don't do it that way, then we're not doing our jobs correctly. Which is a challenge, I think, for young graduates when they're going into offices first, where they're told, you know, this is the way the office does things. And to be able to stand up and say, no, actually, this isn't the right, this isn't the most efficient way of doing things. You know, spend spend an extra day and we'll, you know, save weeks Mm. on what we're doing. Yeah, well, that is... That is what the new architectural technologist is. When I qualified in 1982, I was an architectural technician and I was in there to service the architects in terms of growing production. What you have now is a different ballgame altogether. Now, that whole profession, that course, that profession has developed over those last kind of 35, 36 years. And these guys are now level eight. They're academically equivalent to their engineering, architectural and surveying colleagues. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, and they're coming out with that kind of confidence behind them as well in terms of that this is my business, and I think that kind of leads us on to a you know a very interesting um, discussion in terms of, of where architecture is going. And uh, uh, you know um, I, I do a lot of research, a lot of reading, and um, reading up on the way surveying has developed over the years and the way engineering has developed over the years and uh, how each of those professions has gone into specialisms. So you'll have your civil, who is your general, civil engineer is your general practitioner, if you like, but you've got your structural, who's a, who's a specialist, your mechanical, electoral specialist. 
you went to surveying, they're all specialists within that as well. And I think architecture is going down this road as well. I think that it is breaking up into the design specialist and the technical design specialist. And, um, and that is due to two, two things, due to the progression of, progression of the architectural technology and the education of that, but also due to the architect's reluctance in terms of, of getting involved in the nitty-gritty, into the technical aspect of, of putting buildings together, but also all the requirements that are required now in terms of U-values, in terms of design, in terms of hydrothermal properties, in terms of all of these things, which are very, very technical. They are happy to, to design, and they're brilliant at that, and that is absolutely necessary. But our business is taking us uh, towards a, the technical end of architecture as well. We need a specialist in that, and that's what the architectural technologies is. Do you see the architectural technologist's role would actually splinter more than it is at the moment? different specialities it has done it has done Pat already we've already got uh, our information managers we've got our uh, facade designers we've got um, there are guys specialising in thermal bridging in uh, energy efficiency design you know so there is whole sorts of other areas of of, of splits uh, happening there as well all sitting upon their their uh, their very good level 8 honours architectural technology degree but developing into specialist areas there too. Fantastic. Interesting, you mentioned the, about the, the development of the architectural te- technologies. So, I'd be interested a little bit the architectural technologies register and the work you've been doing in that space as well. Yeah, well, this, this, this is the culmination of. Um, I, I've been at this, I'd say, for a good 40 years now at this point, you know. <laughs> but 40 years ago, the technician was not ready to take his place amongst the professionals. They, they were extremely good at what they did, but they weren't ready. Well, that was 40 years ago. So look at these guys now. They are absolutely ready uh, and are, are already um, sitting at the table uh, as an equal member with their peers of, uh, in, in the design architects, within the engineers, surveyors, and the construction uh, managers, people like that. And uh, what all of those other professions uh, have is a route to professionalism. And what the architectural technologists doesn't have is that route to professionalism and the ATR which is the architectural technologies register uh, is uh, uh, hopefully going to provide that route to professionalism and a lot of people get confused in terms of the argument for uh, the ATR uh, and they would see it as as technologists taking over um, design certifier design certifier roles but as I've, as I've explained to you, they go in so many diverse different directions that only a small percentage want to do that, want to provide full services to, uh, to the industry and to the public. Uh, in order to do that, they need to, have, um, uh, the, need to be given the assigned certifier role uh, to do that. But for me, what is behind the Architectural Technologies Register is the, uh, is, is the recognition, it's parity of esteem, it's, it's equality in terms of your seat at the table uh, with the other professions and that uh, you are recognised as a professional and that, that to me, uh, and that society recognise you as a professional as well. And uh, that to me is the most important thing about the, the, the ATR. So, uh, due to tremendous work done by the Chartered Institute of Architectural Technology, supported by um, lots of people here in Ireland, 
um, negotiations opened up with uh, the department uh, around uh, two or three years ago. We've had two or three ministers since then, um, but uh, it has reached the point where uh, the current minister has um, told CIAT to uh, to organise. They've moved their voluntary register now to a shadow register, and they've accepted that the MCIAT uh, qualification is the bar that has been set for entry into, onto the register. Now that's fantastic. That is brilliant. So there's an organisation there who are absolutely 100% wholehearted uh, supporting this. Um, they have a qualification which supports that. The legislation in terms of setting up the ATR is complex. It's the same for the surveyors and it's the same for uh, the engineers are slightly different and the same for the architects. So there's boards to be populated in terms of uh, codes of conduct boards and entry boards and all sorts of things like that so there's still still a good bit of work to do but the signals are there is correct all that it needs now is a full force support from all the architectural technologists here in this country and we've been a bit lackadaisical over the years uh, perhaps because there wasn't a roadmap there and perhaps because there were certain other organizations who were promising things that didn't come to come to pass but now it's pretty clear that uh, that there is a route and there is a road and what it needs now is support. And I think that would be fantastic if that came about uh, in the next year or two. And how do you think you can drum up that support? We've been doing that through, uh, through social media. Um, I run the Architectural Technology in Ireland forum on LinkedIn, over a thousand members there. I've uh, been pushing it that way. But um, you can't broad... Uh, blast messages like that you really have to start getting into the offices now and saying you know lunchtime meeting are you in support of this if you are sign this here now and let's post it off and get it done and if anybody listening wants to find out more about the ATO where do they it's on the uh, it's www.architecturaltechnologiesregister.ie and all the information you need to know is on that because we wanted to talk about blockchain um any other thoughts around blockchain and how that might apply to the architectural industry, I suppose, the construction industry, particularly the architectural technologists? Yeah, um, well, it's, it's more of an, of an industry thing, Pat. Um, so blockchain is, a, is kind of a research uh, area of mine. And um, how I came to it is, is part of the story of, of, of blockchain. So um, I'm researching a PhD at the moment and... I, one of the things that I, I'm very interested in is collaboration and how people work and how they work together and how they don't work together, what works and what doesn't work. And one of the areas that became very uh, um, to the fore was this idea of trust, trust within our industry. And uh, trust on a, on a lower level uh, works quite well, but trust amongst uh, uh, firms, particularly when there's contracts involved and all sorts of things like that, uh, is is difficult. So um, I tried to find a trust model within our industry that I could apply some, hang some research onto, and there was nothing there. So I started to look outside of our uh, design and construction industry and uh, came across uh, this thing called blockchain and noticed that the language started to, uh, was very interesting. It was very uh, syn- synchronous with the language that we use in terms of collaboration. So trust, collaboration, um, working together, all those sorts of things started to uh, started to pique my interest. 
So I jumped in and started to read more and more and more and more about it. But as I was reading more and informing myself, it became really obvious to me that there were synergies between the blockchain technology and our BIM technology. Now, nobody else in the world had been looking at this. And uh, so, I, so I started to get really kind of excited about it. I started to pick some references from um, uh, Grant Thornton in Spain for some reason. There was a guy looking at it down there. There was another guy over in Seattle that produced some papers and some talks on it as well. And, uh, but nobody had seen that direct connection between the BIM model and, and, and the blockchain and what blockchain can bring to BIM and BIM can bring to blockchain. So uh, I was waiting for uh, ethics approval to come through on my PhD and I said, oh, here, come on, I'm going to jump into this and write a paper on it. So I wrote a paper. Uh, I contacted a colleague of mine, uh, the guy over in Seattle, Dan Robles, and Dan kindly agreed to chip in and uh, do some work on the paper with me. And uh, I presented that at, uh, at the... I think it was at CETA. It was at the, one of the CETA conferences. But that was the very first paper in the world that put together BIM and blockchain. Blockchain previous to that had been um, uh, had taken hold in terms of financial industries, insurance in- industries, um, all that kind of fintech and all that, that area. Um, and there was great progression starting to be made uh, within that. So uh, as, as a result of that paper, uh, it's been downloaded uh, nearly 3,000 times at this point all over the world, and I've had uh, lots of people wanting to talk to me about it. So it's piqued an in interest. So what makes what are all the synergies between the two? And it's basically what's in the middle is trust. So if we had a mechanism whereby you and I, even if we didn't particularly like each other, or even if we were on different sides of the country or something like that, but if we wanted to collaborate true collaboration on the basis of a shared goal, if we had something that could scaffold that trust, that could be visual so that you could see that I'm trusting you and and you could see that you're trusting me, um, very interesting things start to happen. So that's what blockchain does. Blockchain is a mechanism that provides a, um, a, a facility to record value transactions. That's basically what it is. Value transactions. Value transactions could be sharing of data between you and me, or it could be taking a whole model and sharing with me or something like that. Value transactions are happen hundreds of times every day on the site. And um, But one of the difficulties would be uh, if, if, if you shared a model with me and I went and changed your model, you'd be pretty annoyed about it particularly if you didn't find out for a month later or something like that to find that your information wasn't correct or whatever else, you know, uh, which we know has happened. <laughs> um, but if, if, if the other uh, property of blockchain is, uh, is consensus, so you've got this mechanism to record value transaction, you've got a consensus mechanism, which is basically me and you saying, do we agree that this is the current state of our project, the current state of our model? And you go, yeah, I agree, I agree, right. So we're going to take that uh, information and we're going to lock it away and we're going to put it in a block and it becomes uh, accessible to you and me, but it, it can't, be, can't be changed. That is, that is, you can take that as being what we agreed at the time. So there's a foundation of trust starting to be built up there. Um, the third element of blockchain is, to me, the most interesting and the one that a lot of people miss out on and it is the token it's the reward so um, 
you know, you're all familiar with uh, with blockchain through Bitcoin, more than likely. So blockchain is the underlying technology that drives Bitcoin. But what is a Bitcoin? Bitcoin is a reward to the person who solves a puzzle, who gets permission to gather up the transactions and put them into a block. Right? Uh, six years ago, Bitcoin was worth nothing. Couldn't give them away. As you know, we're up to $17,000 at one point. I think we're down to five or six or something like that now. And that's just intrinsic value. People, you know, people collect all sorts of things, but people want to collect uh, bitcoins uh, as as a way of being able to transact again value transactions as well. It was a way of anonymously being able to conduct business too, so that we could, um, uh, you know, you could agree to sell me something and we we pay for it in in bitcoin. So the exchange is anonymized because it's all hidden behind cryptography and hashing and all sorts of things like that. And that uh, that scared the pants off banks in the world because they made their money through putting on extra charges for every uh, little transaction that went and happened but getting back to the bitcoins and getting back to the token to me the greatest property that blockchain has the single greatest property is that it has the propensity to change human behavior and the last technology that came along that had that same um that, that could do something similar was the World Wide Web. And when that started, we all looked at it and go, you know, I don't know if you remember the little box that you had and you connect and you hear the bing, bing, bing. And you go, <laughs> boom. Yeah, we're on the internet. Yay. Yay. Yeah. 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 Not everybody in the room. Most of us do, I think. But the question after that was, uh, I'm on the internet. What do I do now? Yeah, what's next? You know, so there was no applications built onto the internet that we could particularly go into, you know. So blockchain is at that stage where it's starting to develop. Uh, uh, you could say blockchain one would have been Bitcoin. Blockchain two is kind of Ethereum. Blockchain three. So it's consistently developing in the way that the World Wide Web developed. Uh, and I think it is going to have a huge impact in not just design and construction, uh, but in other industries as well. But I think it has huge potential to influence human behavior within design and construction and my god don't we need that you know people call for a culture change within our industry and the culture change is basically trust and collaboration that's what it is all the rest are just bits and pieces if you and i can't work together then no no tools or or uh, no uh, tech no other f- fancy materials or anything else, else like that is going to happen unless you and i can work together in a trustworthy uh, way of doing things the industry is set up at the moment to be confrontational. It's set up, absolutely. That's it. That's it. So we have to start thinking differently. We have to start thinking radically outside the box. And, uh, and that's where blockchain will come into its own in terms of providing a facility for people who are interested in doing that and interested in changing. So if you can imagine a situation where we did work together and uh, I liked the way you worked with me and I was in a position to award you tokens to say thanks very much for your efforts on this project I'm giving you 100 whatever it is AEC coin tokens um, and they might be worth two pence two cents but they're worth something to you because you can show that to somebody else to say this guy you know this is my reputation here I've got 100 tokens because I've worked well with him and you start to work with somebody else and they give you 50 tokens and they give you and you're starting to build up a, a token of value here now somebody says um 
you remember we worked together and it was really, really good? Um, is there any chance you could give me back 50 tokens for the work that I've done for you or something like that? And you start getting an interesting exchange of value there in terms of, of you know, you can say, no, you were rubbish. I'm not giving you anything, you know. Or <laughs> uh, say, actually, you were really good. So, uh, yeah, let's, let's, let's work out something here. So it's a little bit theoretical, but the intention is there to reward somebody for their collaborative work. And uh, and again, I think that has that has huge potential as well. Well, all of these technologies start off being you know, difficult for people to access, and then they become easier and easier and easier. I mean, you mentioned Dynamo earlier. Dynamo, you know, when, when it first came out, you know, it was sort of computer programmers almost to do it, and now anybody can do it. So blockchain will come. Out. It'll be it'll be in the background of what we do. Um, we won't all need to know exactly what blockchain is or how it works. I we don't all need to know how no. code works. And, yeah. Yeah. Oh, we'll, we'll drive the car. We don't need to know how the engine works. You know, <laughs> we'll, we'll drive the car. But Dolan is a hub of blockchain activity, a world hub of blockchain activity. Really interesting stuff going on. Deloitte have their European blockchain lab here in Dublin. Um, a few of the other financial institutes have have it here as well. So. Um, here's a new job that didn't exist. What, four years ago even? A yeah. blockchain developer? There you go. Trusting people is really important, but trusting the information as well, and that's one of the problems, particularly with existing buildings. You know, there's information existing about existing buildings, but you can't trust it. Yeah. You know? So if you get involved in an existing building, the first thing you do is you go and recreate all the information again because you don't trust what's there. Yeah, yeah. So if there's a mechanism by which... You know, we can create information that's yeah. um, trustworthy. Well, here's uh, uh, we're myself and uh, one of my master's students, uh, Alan O'Reilly. We're presenting a paper now uh, at CETA uh, in September. And uh, Alan's taken the idea of um, incentivizing AEC teams using BIM blockchain. And he's actually gone and created using a Dynamo script. He's created a blockchain using a Dynamo script in which... Um, Information, heat information from sensors in the building is recorded to the blockchain. Now that becomes really interesting because we're in this era of predictive analysis. So um, I don't see why a client can't come to a design team and say, I want a better than net zero building. I want a building that produces energy, not uses it. And you can say, well, we can do that for you, but we want something out of it as well. And you say, right, well... You tell me what uh, you predict this building is going to do, and we'll measure what it actually does. And the energy that's left over, you can sell. So you've got a blockchain that has the predictive, a blockchain that has the actual. You can do a comparison of the two. Whatever uh, residual is left over, uh, literally you could have a pole outside of the building which will charge your electric car. And you'll go in with with the phone, QR code, you'll swipe it, It'll start to deduct money from your account, which goes into the account of the, of the client or the people who own the building or whoever's doing that. And a microcharge starts to, uh, to arrive and your, your excess energy is being used. So it's not being sold to the back to the grid, which is a difficult thing to do in Ireland, but you're selling it. So mobile phone charging, car charging, all those kind of things that we use. Can literally be done now with, with Wi-Fi now as well, you know, so you don't have to plug it in too uh, but all of these value transactions that are happening are recorded in the blockchain so that there can be a distribution of of, of value uh, of coinage or of, of real money or something like that it does not become a really interesting prospect fascinating yeah absolutely hugely, hugely valuable 
hugely valuable. So we're, we're presenting that paper uh, in, uh, in September and uh, I'm excited and looking forward to that one. So thanks Maliki, thanks for coming in and sharing your thoughts with us, it's fascinating. Yeah, thanks. Thanks. It's um, you know it it, it it is a fascinating area. I presented up in Belfast uh, to um, a conference up there, which was packed with young people, and I said, "Gosh, I wish I was twenty years younger," because I think there's a hugely interesting uh, um, and exciting future ahead. And when you look at it, Pat, you know, it's only 40 years ago, 35 years ago, we were still on rotaring pens and, well. and tracing paper. Look where we are now. Can you imagine where we're going to be in another 35 years? It's a, it's a really exciting. So architectural technology, without doubt, uh, they are the guys that are providing the fuel for our BIM revolution because they're taking those skills into all these offices, engineering, construction, architecture, and, uh, and represented themselves extremely well. So delighted uh, with the progress that's been made. And thanks for the opportunity to come and talk to you. Super. Thanks, Mike. All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks.